This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Analyzing Anfield. I am Josh Williams, host, and I'm joined by David Hughes, I suppose the co-host. Uh, how are you getting on with? Yeah, I'm fine, mate. I'm uh... I'm, I'm sad that I'm sitting indoors because it looks very warm outside, but uh, except for that, I'm okay. Yeah, still self-isolating, still uh, looking after yourself and that. Yeah, we all are, aren't we? I mean, I'm still trying to work in the garden when I can, uh, especially today. But See, that's the problem. We, uh, I was explaining to our producer guy that I'm in an apartment and... Most of the year, we're quite lucky because our apartment's a little bit bigger, the living room. So where I'm sitting now is like an extension um, coming out. And it's like an aesthetic thing for the building. So there's only two of the apartments that have this. And then every, everybody else just has a balcony. So most of the time, it's good because you have more living room space. But yeah, when, when it's times like these, unprecedented times, I'd, you know, I'd pay good money to be on a balcony right now just to get some uh, proper fresh air. But um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you, me- you mentioned there that it's that it's unprecedented times. It's unprecedented times in the podcast world as well. Mm. Um, last week we did a Q and A, but we can't do a Q and A every single week. So still trying to deliver content. So this week we're gonna see what it's like to address an old match, classic match, um, one that's kind of gone down in Liverpool's history, I suppose, one that'll be remembered. Um, we did put it out there to the public to, to um, send in the suggestions. Um, and we might go along with that another week, depending on how they go. But um, I think I think one of the matches that got a, a decent amount of votes was actually Liverpool 4-0 over Barcelona, which we've already analysed at the end of last season. So mm-hmm. anyone wanting to see that, just rewind a few a few months and you'll get it there in the archives. In the archives. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna tackle a match that I've already reviewed this week, uh, last week for for the Liverpool Echo, um, and you watched it last night, didn't you, Dave? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So we've gone down the route. One of the most memorable memorable for me in terms of how crazy the match was. Uh, Liverpool five, Arsenal one, the 2013-14 season when we finished agonisingly second under Brendan Rodgers. Um, but I think it's got a good few storylines in it. And I think I'm sure you'll agree, Dave, it was an absolute crazy, certainly first 20-minute period. Yeah, it was dangerous. One thing that when I was kind of, uh, prior to watching that game, just doing a little bit of research on the game was, you know, it's, it's probably worth pointing out to people as well, um, that like Arsenal were going for the title then. Like they were, I think they may have been top going into the game or second and could go top if they, if they got a victory. So it wasn't like the the kind of Arsenal that we've become accustomed to over the last couple of years. Um, no, they were really... Yeah. Oh, they were top. There you go. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were a really good side. They looked like they could finally end their wait for a title. I think it was about maybe 10 years or so then. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was like a, a real top game between two top sides. And it was... it, it Beforehand, it would have been one to... It would have been really difficult, I suppose, to try and try and pick and win it at the time. Obviously, it didn't pan out like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly shouldn't have been as comfortable as it was. Um, but we're going to get into it anyway. We'll, we'll address... We won't go through each goal, but we'll address various talking points in the match, storylines around it. And basically, more than ever, have, I suppose, what is just a chat about the match. Um, if we go off on a tangent, it's fine this week, I suppose. Um, we've got quite a vague agenda, so... It could be a 20 minute pod, could be a well, I was going to say it could be a four hour pod, but that's a little bit longer, isn't it? Oh, yeah, oh, I mean, that's thinking, mate. <laughs> no, what I will say just yeah, quickly we'll, again, we'll, sorry, just on that point was that I'm pretty sure the top four was separated by points, and this was in February, which is it's mad to think about that now, isn't it? Yeah, I was, I was thinking this was in February, and yeah. Arsenal were top, and when it did come to Liverpool, actually getting edged out by City. Chelsea were in the mix. Mm. But Arsenal seems to have completely fell off it by that point. Yeah. I can't quite remember what happened. I I think this might have been the catalyst for it, you know. Yeah, it might have been, yeah. 
but uh, they were yeah. in contention for the large majority of the season. I don't know mm. if they suffered an injury or whatever. Maybe Guy had not the Arsenal fan producer, but he's a uh, they completely fell off it by the looks of it. Mm. Um, but I think the first talking point, one of the first um, things that took my took my attention was Liverpool's style of play on the day. Because mm. when when Brendan Rodgers got the job, very um, philosophical and a little bit David Brent, and uh, he went down the route of you know ball possession and. He'd, he'd, he'd been to see Ajax and things like that and he'd uh, spent time with Ramsey yeah. keeping the ball and things. So it, was, it, it wasn't it was a Rodgers style of play, really, for me. Um, but it certainly worked. I mean, it was very it was very vertical, I thought, very aggressive, very direct. Um, and if I'm being honest, almost in the mould of Jurgen Klopp. Mm, yeah, yeah. It felt like um, it was quite. It was quite bizarre after watching so much of this current Liverpool side to see a Liverpool side who were almost sitting in like a mid block, happy to forfeit possession of the ball, let Arsenal kind of control proceedings a little bit in terms of possession. But then, as you said, as soon as the ball was won back or in the transitions, it was just bam, really, really, really quick balls forwards. Um, you know, say it was Gerard picking it up. It was very direct. It wasn't back to a centre back to regain possession. It was all get the ball forward as quick as possible to the to the kind of lethal forward line that Liverpool had on the day. Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was kind of if you were to if you were to put that match on next weekend, um, and every every team was to play in shadows, I think you'd 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 probably look at that and think that's Klopp's Liverpool. Albeit all mm. with a slightly deeper line of engagements, as you said, a bit of a mid-block. But the yeah. actual yeah. use of the ball, how they attacked, it was very, very similar, I thought. Certainly to the early years under Klopp, maybe a bit more now, he's a bit more controlling, isn't he? Liverpool a bit more dominating. Yeah, but certainly that's the what the point years. I was going to add. Yeah, I think uh, that's all I was going to add, yeah. Maybe the early years, obviously now Liverpool have a more controlling game because sides don't want to engage with them really anywhere up the pitch. But um yeah, certainly those first few years it was a kind of um a clock performance, I guess. But yeah, you know, Liverpool that season had loads of success playing like that, didn't they? I remember they did it against Everton in the four nil game where it was just just um almost I don't know if it was always a, a case of forfeit and possession, but it was certainly there was no qualms with letting the uh, opponents have the ball and then just hitting them really fast on the counter because they had such a lethal front line. Yeah, I mean, we, we will get to the front line because it was quite ridiculous. Um, but you just mentioned there about, you know, Liverpool forfeiting possession and things like that. I have got the numbers here in terms of the basics, at least. We sadly don't have expected goals going back this far. Maybe some providers do, but we don't at the minute. But Liverpool only had 43 possession, uh, 43% possession on the day. Mm. But they had 22 shots. Um, Liverpool, Arsenal had 57% possession. Half the amount of shots with 11. And Liverpool also had double the amount on target with 12. Arsenal found the target six times. So it, it was very much, I thought, like a, a transition-based approach almost. Um, before the real transition game hit European football, really, I think I think the transition game hit European football when I think maybe when Bayern Munich really demolished Barcelona and when mm-hmm. Borussia Dortmund reached the Champions League final. I think around that, so I think it was it was happening about now, but it was still a very new thing. Yeah, and it, I suppose if you almost you look back now and you think the best possible opponent to face in that situation is a team like Arsenal whose philosophy is is very clear and they, they won't adjust. Like I was I was watching the game and this was when the, it, they were 2-0 down, 2-3-0 down and they're winning, you know, free kicks in Liverpool's half. And rather than maybe thinking, right, let's go a little bit more direct here, try and get a goal, they're, they're, they're trying to play you know, restart it with a five-yard pass backwards or sideways. And it, it just seemed really bizarre to watch. Um, and I suppose Liverpool and Rodgers knew how kind of they stick to their one philosophy and therefore they knew 
the approach to to beat it, I guess. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that actually because uh, I'll give give our listeners a little sneak peek here if it's if it's not out by this point. But because of the the extra time that we've had lately to, to spend on writing, I've teamed up with the the gaming writer at Reach to create Liverpool's four three three in Football Manager. Um, that'll be going up on the Echo website in the next few days or so. So look out for that one if you're if you're into FM twenty. Um, but just on that, we've been speculating for other teams, other styles of play that we could recreate in Football Manager. And uh, the gaming writer Nathan mentioned Wenger's Arsenal, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, yeah, but once you lose the ball, there's no instructions at all. There's not a single instruction you can really give them because Arsenal were very much a possession-based team, and in transition and in defence, it was just kind of um, I don't know. There was no real team behaviour, was there? It was just kind of." Each individual just defends almost, and I've seen quotes in the past of like, I think it was Gilberto Silva speaking about how certainly without the ball and in terms of covering positions, Arsenal's players would just do it in real time on the pitch without ever really planning it behind the scenes. But that was interesting. Yeah, it, was, um, it felt with with the ball there was only really a plan A. Um, they didn't really know how to adjust into. They didn't have like a plan B or. Or beyond that, and yeah, I agree. I think in terms of without the ball, it was very basic, and even being yeah. too, quite critical. Yeah, I mean, one of the first starting points then from the actual match, obviously, with it being the thirteen fourteen season, we can't start with any other player than Luis Suarez. Okay. Uh, quick insight, Dave, from an Everton perspective, what was it like seeing uh, <laughs> seeing Suarez play for Liverpool every single week? It was easier to appreciate him after after he left for Barcelona. I'd probably yeah, say that. But you know what? I'm actually I'm actually having a look at Suarez from that season. Now I'm thinking of just doing a, a little piece on him uh, because you probably you know what you actually touched on it earlier a little bit. I don't feel like players or teams were quantified in the same way they are in the modern game. Like now, you know, it, it feels like there's been an analytical boom over the last few years. And I think this 13-14 season, a lot of like the mainstream stuff didn't really have access to the data. Um, and even though we won PFA Player of the Year that year, I still don't think his greatness in that campaign was ever truly quantified, if I'm being totally honest with you. Um, he scored 31 goals in 33 games, which is just mad. He got 12 assists as well. He was I'm going to add, fat. I'm gonna add he didn't take a single penalty. Yeah, not yeah, one. That's such a, that's so important to know, Josh. And you, I feel like you of all people and people listening will also be a bit like, "Oh my god, that's a lot." But obviously, we reference you know outputs quite a lot. Do you know how many shots he was taking per ninety that season? No. Well, think of like obviously you know what Salah's like three point eight or something, isn't it? He was yeah. uh, he, he was averaging five point five shots per ninety. Wow, that is a lot. That in the Premier yeah, League, um, yeah, wow, five point five, and he had forty five percent on target percentage as well. <laughs> that is insane, just, isn't it? Yeah, like I mean, 5. that's 5. like five per ninety. That's like peak Cristiano Ronaldo numbers, I think. Like yeah, Lionel Messi and things like that. That's like that. But what stands out, obviously, it's not just quantity. The quality was there as well. It's just, honestly, it's. A, I think had he had he done that season, maybe last year, then you know it would have been in a million and one blogs. People would have been make, making a hundred and one visits about it. Um, but we haven't got the same level of data for that campaign as we have now. As you touched on before, we haven't got expected numbers and things. But certainly at our level, maybe clubs may have had that stuff. But yeah, he was phenomenal. Yeah, that that's crazy. That that's absolutely blown my mind. Five point five <laughs> shots per ninety. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned there that he scored thirty-one goals, and in all competitions for Liverpool that season, he registered nineteen assists as well. So that's fifty scoring contributions. Um, and over the course of his minutes, which I'll add, he very, very rarely got injured. Um, 
he 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 posted a scoring contribution, so a goal or an assist every sixty-five minutes for Liverpool last season. Um, for perspective, this season, Sadio Mane is every one hundred and one minutes. Mo Salah, I think, is every one hundred and eighteen minutes. Luis Suarez every sixty-five minutes in that season. It's insane, honestly, insane. Yeah. Um, but on that day, he actually played on the right. Um, and Rodgers has since claimed that that was because Nacho Monreal was a threat of Arsenal's and Rodgers thought that if he, he, he played Suarez up against them, Suarez would A, be able to cover him defensively, but B, if Suarez was drifting into the space behind Monreal, that would give Monreal with uh, a decision to make, basically, do I go and leave Suarez unattended? Or do I stay and not support my team in attack? So I thought it was quite a little, quite a clever little tactical move. That Rodgers was quite good at that sort of thing. I think he, I think he still is, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It was, an, uh, it was a good. It was kind of a good little pressing side when you think about it. Because Suarez was really good at pressing, you know, off the ball, and, and so was Henderson. I'm right in saying Henderson was behind him, wasn't he? Yeah, Henderson was on the right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I think that kind of nullified one of their better attacks on the day. Um, and you know, as we just touched on, how great Suarez was. He, he was, he's so fluid as well. Like he's really hard to track. So I did find there was quite a few occasions where he'd be drifting inside, and storage would be kind of switching out to the right. Um, I mean, you know what? When when you actually just really quickly, when you think about that that attack on the day, it had Coutinho, Sterling, Storage, Suarez. Like it was, it was a ludicrous like front four, really. Yeah, it was. I was going to actually get to that, um, but I just had a little little work out there of um, them Suarez numbers. By the way, just to put into perspective how how much five point five shots per ninety is. Um, if he was to take five point five shots per ninety over a full thirty eight game season, by the end of the season he'd have taken about two hundred nine shots on goal. In comparison to a player who takes three per ninety, with three being three is a solid return, isn't it? Mm. Um, if you're taking three per ninety over the course of a thirty-eight game campaign, you'll take about one hundred and fourteen. So that's why there's taken in and around about a hundred shots more over the full season than your average top player, I suppose. Um, when you consider that forty-five percent are on target as well. Yeah, just an absolute massive threat. Um, I've got something on Liverpool's frontier. Yeah, um, the the fact that I just got up the side the actual lineup on on the BBC UK, and it's such a shame because they've got they've got the eleven down, um, and the bottom five players, so the, so the attacking players, obviously, you've got Raheem Sterling, Luis Suarez, Daniel Sturridge, Phil Coutinho. And Jordan Henderson. Now, they're all undeniably top, top players. But then at the opposite end, (laughs) excluding Steven Gerrard, because obviously a bit of a special case here, he was ageing and stuff like that. So, excluding Gerrard, in defence on the day, we had Colo Torre, Martin Scale, Ali Sissoko, John Flanagan, Simon Mignolet. It's it's arguably the most top-heavy team I think I've ever seen. Yeah, that's something I picked up on, to be honest. In fact, there was a moment where I thought, I'm going to reference this on the pod, because this sums up the uh, how top-heavy this side is and the difference between the attack and the defence. Do you remember that corner in around the 14th minute? I mean, you'll, you will remember because it was phenomenal, where um, it's clipped out and it's clipped behind Suarez, edge of the box, and you managed to, manages to fabricate this unbelievable volley Hits it, it smashes against the post, comes out to Colo Torre, I think, who's about eight yards out from goal. All right, it does come out quick, admittedly, but he just yes. puts it wide. <laughs> oh, I, I've, said before to, I've said before to plenty of people that that's one of like the best goals never scored that I've seen mm. in the Premier League. That if that goes in, mm. that just sums up the season, I think, because he scored, yeah, he scored two absolute belts against Norwich from outside the box. Mm. Um, he was renowned for scoring the odd little crazy goal that no one's even attempt. 
Um, I think that one would have been right up there with his very best. Um, but just just a very quick comparison between Salah's big season at Liverpool and, and Suarez's last season at Liverpool because people are inclined to compare that. Um, when I actually looked into the numbers do you, in terms of goals and assists per minute, I was actually quite surprised at how close they were. Um, I just said before, didn't I, that Suarez was posting a goal or an assist every 65 minutes. Um, Salah, every 69. That's quite close, isn't it? And Salah played in the Champions League as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting one because I think... I actually think Salah scored more goals for Liverpool in a, in more in less games than Suarez, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. But Suarez's yeah, first few yeah. years, he was very rough around the edges. Well, yeah, that's what I was about to lead on to. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because he was still really liked in his first eighteen months or so at Anfield, but it seemed a lot of people liked him more for his work ethic and things he did in and around the box than his actual goal return. I think he only scored 15 across his first season and a half in the Premier League. And when you consider that, you know, he went and scored 21 the next season and then 31 thereafter. Like, it's 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 just it's crazy how he kind of developed into this scoring machine because I, I, he didn't really look at it at one point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, to know the the logic behind Damien Kamali signing Suarez because I, I know that there was efforts placed into it and I know we spoke about it briefly in certain podcasts since but I think Kamali dedicated the summer budget to Suarez in January mm. because he was that kind and, and the intention was to play him alongside Fernando Torres um, mm. which would have been you know some partnership but uh, it'd be interesting to see if Kamali did have this kind of player in mind and this ceiling in mind when he when he invested. I think it was twenty two and a half million for my ex. Um, but another another player that we went on to sign who played alongside him throughout the season, uh, Daniel Sturridge. Um, he played Sturridge Rogers on a day. Played Sturridge through the middle. Uh, another little tactical move from him because obviously Pierre Mertesacker is in the centre back. And he's mm. not the quickest. And next to Pierre Mertesacker is Lauren Koscielny, who's not the quickest either. Mm. You've got Sturridge threatening him behind, and you've got Suarez catering for Monreal on the side. But I always think with Sturridge, you know, what, what could have been, really, mm. uh, without the injuries, yeah. that's, that's probably the common thought. Yeah, he was a, you know, he was, he was a really good finisher. He had loads of pace. He was actually quite skillful as well. I think people forget that, but... He was, when, yeah. he, when he stood when he stood to play look one on one you you know you always back them really to to bypass him um and yeah obviously another thing just you you've touched on the defenders that they that they had a really high line as well in that game I thought so yeah he um, did, yeah it played perfectly into into uh, storage's hands in terms of just putting balls through or over um who was it was it oh Coutinho's pass for the was it the third goal yeah, that, like that was, yeah, that was ridiculous. It was just a perfect kind of, not even always Coutinho, just a perfect storage goal in terms of someone executing a really good ball behind the defensive line for him to run onto. And obviously, you always fancied them, and certainly in that season to to score. Yeah, I mean, storage that season, just a really alternative type of striker. I thought because he didn't really fit any conventional mould, and as you say, he was very very skillful. Um, mm. the way he used the ball and the way he used his body and he was just he was I think the closest player I can possibly compare him to is Abamyang a few years ago, that kind of striker I suppose. Um but he's 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 claimed to think that his idol for, for a few years was Ronaldinho. He looked up to Ronaldinho a lot and I think you can tell that looking at Sturridge just the way yeah, he yeah. the way he uses the ball and things and but I looked into his numbers actually. He, he registered the score and contribution every seventy-eight minutes that season, uh, which again, really, really high. That that um, you know, dwarf Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah based on this season at least. Uh, yeah. But yeah, just a top player, and it's a shame we couldn't have um, couldn't have actually kept hold of Suarez for longer and stood it for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I beyond injuries. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because we're talking about the forwards, you forget that that, that forward line scored 101 goals, didn't he? Like, well, obviously the team scored 101 goals, but the, the main contributors to that was the, the forwards. Like, 101 goals is a lot. Like, that's... Yeah. I think Liverpool scored 80-odd last season and they were formidable, you know, over a 38-game season. And 101 just shows how ruthless that attack was. I always think back, I think it's a shame that, you know, the this, this season after, if we'd have kept Suarez and if we'd have kept a, a fit, healthy version of Sturridge mm. and maybe just added only a centre-back who's top quality and maybe replaced Mignolet in goal just what that team could have gone on to become but Liverpool had a fair few of those false dawns before we um, we reached the current level that we've got on the Jurgen Klopp Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel Going back to the match uh, first two goals both uh, Martin Scale Martin Scale scored the brace inside the first 10-15 minutes was he? Yeah, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Scale as a defender? I'll be honest, I, I didn't think he was anything above above average. Uh, I, I, he was a, probably still a top six defender in, in his prime, but I don't ever remember being envious of of a Liverpool side having a Martin Scale in there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going against the grain there, I'm not sure. No, no, I'm inclined to agree. I think, I think we've said before that goals tend to influence narratives, don't they, and people's perceptions and stuff. And I, th- I think this is a complete guess, but I think that season, I think he scored about eleven, <laughs> six, six, he, yeah? six, six to eleven. I don't know why I've got that in my mind, <laughs> but it was between like six and eleven days. goals. Yeah, there's quite a gap there, but yeah, it was a lot anyway. Um, <laughs> Obviously scoring yeah. a brace there at Arsenal. I think he scored away mm. to Manchester City at some point. Scored a volley in the in the penalty box. I'm not sure if that was that season or not. But he scored a few big goals anyway in big games. And mm. I think his his mentality was generally quite good. But he was a little bit reckless. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. just generally a little bit limited in certain areas. But I'd agree with you. Certainly a top eight defender. Probably a top six defender. But maybe if you're going for a championship... A little bit short. Did um, did you find anything interesting about the set pieces? Uh, only the fact that Gerard's delivery is ridiculous. <laughs> mm. Only well, that. Yeah. What well, well, what I did what well, I did notice though, not nothing anything analytical, but I think that first one gets ruled out if it was in twenty twenty because of uh, I think he's slightly offside. You know. Oh, was he? Yeah. I thought you were going to say it. Yeah, very slight. No, no, I think it's slightly offside. Um, and another thing as well, actually, going. I know we're going off damn rabbit holes here, but it's one. It's it's more of a chilled episode, isn't it? Yeah, that's the idea. The, of this episode. Yeah, I actually thought the first ten minutes was quite even. You know, I know Liverpool scored two, but they both come from set pieces. But in terms of the the all round play, I thought like because my memory before watching this game back was Liverpool just blitzing Arsenal within the first 20-25 minutes mm. um, and obviously the, when you look back on the game of the first half stats they, they did dominate them but the first 10 minutes when you watch it it was quite even and it was those kind of set pieces that really changed the direction of the game to Liverpool's favour and obviously thereafter they just kind of grew into it and started blowing Arsenal away but um, it was just interesting how I remember the game compared to how I watched it yesterday. Yeah, I mean, one thing I mentioned in the piece that I did for the Echo cover in this game was um, the fact that Liverpool's game plan to sit in the mid-block, wait for a mistake and then dive forwards, obviously a lot easier to execute when you've got a goal lead or a two-goal lead. Liverpool got that through set-pieces through Martin Scale. Um, and that allowed the game plan to just be very easily applied, I thought. Uh, but you're probably right there, yeah, in terms of the early stages. Um, I, I I've got we'll, a question we'll, for you, actually, just before yeah, we move on. Because you, you were, we were talking about defenders and you were querying where I stood on Skirtle. Where did uh, you stand on Flanagan, John Flanagan? 
Um, because it, it, people might forget this, but he was Liverpool captain for the odd couple of games in the season after, wasn't he? And he was kind of, I don't know, he'd become pretty popular pretty quick without maybe necessarily, yeah. I don't know, having the skill set. No, he did. I mean, hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast, but because he's probably going to perceive me as very creepy when I say this, but I, I, went, I actually went to school with him. Um, he was in the year above me. Um, oh, so I remember, yeah. I remember them on on the on the playground and stuff like that, the yard, whatever you want to call it. I always remember them with a football, constantly playing fuzzy. Um, but I didn't really, if I'm being honest, I didn't remember them being amazing. I didn't remember them yeah, being the yeah. top of the school in terms of his ability. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, another interesting note. Hopefully, this lad doesn't listen either because this is going to be <laughs> equally creepy. But in, in my year was Adam Morgan. Um, he no, was deemed, from what I remember, as the next big thing. Um, and he was known in the school for being a top footballer. Um, he had to get permission off Liverpool to play for my school if he wanted to and all, and all that stuff. And there was a lot of hype around him. So when it came to actually Flanagan making it and, and Morgan going a little bit quiet and having to eventually move mm-hmm. somewhere, I was a little bit surprised. Um, and... I was actually quite surprised at how well Flanagan did because uh, he's not yeah, the quickest, yeah. he's not the strongest. Technically, very, very, you know, he was kind of like a Carragher, technically. Carragher was underrated, mm-hmm. I thought, technically. His technical ability was very good, Jamie Carragher, but maybe because he's not kind of like a an aesthetically pleasing player, it kind of got overlooked. I think Flanagan technically was quite good. Good close control and stuff like that, but... He didn't have many qualities that he could apply on a professional football pitch to get over opponents. But he, he found a way for that season and you know, credit to him, but I think he's eventually with, I think he's uh, he's with Gerard now in at Rangers, isn't he? Yeah, so I um, my my opinion of him really is I felt like he was never he was never that great. Um that sounds really harsh, but let me give some context to it. He was never that great, but I thought if you look as we've already covered on this show, if you look at that side, they were very um, direct, quick, and I thought he got up really well and joined the attack fast. There was a moment in the first half where he makes an overlapping run and nearly gets a shot off on goal, and I thought that that kind of summed summed up his game as to why he was maybe successful in that regime, but perhaps why he hasn't been successful. In latter stages, um, I think that team just suited them that that year. And also, I don't think there was that much competition, was there? Um, no, I can't. I can't actually remember offhand why he eventually got a chance. Um, maybe Glenn Johnson suffered an injury or something like that. Can't remember. And also, he was a he was a scouser as well. Scouts right back, you know. They tend to yeah, the scouts cafe. I think he got nicknamed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I will say about him, I think he did. And this is this is underestimated. This I think he did the basics very very well. Um, just the traditional old school football instructions of you know if you're defending, get tight to your man, be aggressive, let him know you're there. All those standard like you dash shouts if you like. <laughs> uh, he applied very very well on a football pitch, and I think Sheffield mm-hmm. United, for example, are a team that aren't the most gifted. But they applied themselves in that way very, very well every week, hence why the difficult to face. Mm. And I think Flanagan was similar in that regard. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. I didn't I didn't really expect him to go on to to become this scout cafe as I am as I am now with Alexander Arnold, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I think that there's different levels between those two. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree there, yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll move on anyway to another Liverpool Academy graduate. To round off the front three, I suppose, on the day, Raheem Sterling. This was arguably his his breakthrough match, really. Um, mm-hmm. I think he went on to play a big part in in the remaining months of the season um, for Liverpool, going for that title. Um, played in a variety of positions under Rodgers, including as a number ten, and actually looked really good. Um, but I remember him in the early days just being abs. Not not that he still isn't, but being absolutely lightning quick, one of the quickest players over a short distance that, I, that I've ever seen, really. Mm, yeah. His acceleration was like, his acceleration to his top speed was just immediate. 
Yeah, he could do it in five yards, couldn't he? Really, which is yeah. is some is quite rare. Obviously, you normally players tend to gradually build that over maybe ten, fifteen. But yeah, five yards, boom! And he was so quick and dangerous. Yeah. It's a shame that he didn't didn't go on to to stay at Liverpool, really, because I think what Liverpool had there was you know a front three in Suarez, Sturridge, and Sterling. Um, all three really, really quick, unpredictable. Um, can find the back of the net very dangerous on the ball and stuff like that but Suarez wants to leave Sterling wants success and Sturridge can't stay, can't stay fifth sadly so we didn't get enough out of it mm. um, yeah. and another little player that I think we need to mention because he was he was involved in a, in a, a positional move that received quite a bit of um, maybe criticism is the word I'm not sure uh, Rogers moving Stephen Gerrard to number six. What was your thoughts on that at the time? Um, it, to be honest, and I don't remember being—I don't remember really the outrage of it. But obviously, I was out of the bubble, I guess. Um, I, w- I wouldn't really me, say it was it, outrage. I think it was more a case of like a lot of people just thinking, "Why would you prevent him from attacking? He can still do it," sort of thing. Yeah, see, I, I I pretty much accepted that he couldn't anymore and almost becoming like a quarterback type player, you know, having to adjust to that role is natural, really, I think, for a player like Gerard, who's, you know, he's a fantastic, exquisite passer of the ball. He hasn't really got the legs anymore to drive at defences, so naturally you can try and make use of him in that, you know, deeper role and almost like a, like a pivot, I guess. Um, and you see, yeah. he played well in this game. I thought. Yeah, he had a really good season. Actually, I think if, you, if you're looking through his numbers, okay, he took a fair few pens, mm. but he he hit double figures for goals scored and assisted. Um, mm. At the age of maybe 32, 33, can't remember. Um, mm. From number six position, so he was just he, he was as you say a quarterback. And at the time, I didn't I didn't have much of an issue. With the move, the positional switch, because as you said, just said, it, it when your legs start to go, it's increasingly difficult to perform a really, really mobile, energetic box to box role, which is what Gerard was famous for for years. Yeah. So to keep him in the side, let him focus less on mobility and more on dictating really with his passing range, which I I think is has always been underrated. Yeah. And, and on the day as well, you know, that uh, the two players who were playing like number eight, obviously Henderson and Coutinho, I mean, that's that's a pretty solid duo in those positions. So it seems like that's a good use of Gerrard as as a six. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, Coutinho as a number eight. I think, I think I'm right in saying that was one of the first few times he really did that. I think before that he was always kind of a number 10 or a left-sided player. Mm. Um but I think, you know, it interestingly offered a bit of an insight into where he'd where he'd end up in his future. Um because yeah, Philip yeah. ended up kind of playing a an eight slash wide player kind of role. And for Brazil I certainly think he played in midfield uh, alongside Neymar, he was on the left out wide. But I thought I must say I thought Cusinho was magic. I I still love Cusinho. I know I know what happened happened, but He'll always be a player that I'll be really, really fond of just because of how amazing he was to watch, I thought. Yeah, no, he was uh, we were talking where we got that montage that was doing the rounds on Twitter over the last week or so of it was kind of best bits for Liverpool or from a certain campaign. And obviously I know they're they're a collection of someone's best bits, so they always look favourable to the player, but you remember how good he was, really, on top of that. And that was just a reminder. Um, he was a, a fantastic player. Um, but the thing is, yeah. in, in terms of the highlight reel that you've just mentioned, I think the compilation that caught my attention most was just a compilation of a single match against Newcastle. Uh, and so I might have seen a different one. Yeah, he, he played against Newcastle, and it was when Liverpool demolished Newcastle at St James's Park like 6-0 or something it was I think mm. so whatever the whatever year that was 2014 maybe Coutinho was just running it he was just oh the passing was superb and his awareness of what's going on around him and one step ahead of every other player next to him mm. um, 
I think anyone that wants to watch that just you know search into Twitter Coutinho Newcastle and it'll probably just come up at the top as a as a compilation of of his actions on the day. But I think he was just a top player, Coutinho. Like, mm, yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, it's interesting that it hasn't quite worked out for them uh, since he's left. But I think he, he he arguably went to one of the worst clubs in terms of his kind of role and positioning and how he plays. You know, then going to Barcelona, who already carry a player, really, and Messi, which sounds yeah. ludicrous to say, but I just mean in terms of his, his positioning and his role within the side, he's he's very much left to his own devices, isn't he? And um, Coutinho could be like that sometimes, and hence why he probably hasn't been success there. Yeah. No, that's that's kind of my theory on that as well. I think Coutinho's the type of player to, if he, if you want to thrive, <laughs> if you want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the joys of uh, this whole working, isn't it? Yeah, I think people, yeah. people just have to accept what's going on. We're in a world crisis, so you might get the other <laughs> yeah. Obviously, he's in a crisis as well. Um, <laughs> what was I saying then? What was I saying? He's completely... talking about Coutinho and oh, just yeah, his, yeah. his role at Barcelona. And, yeah. But I think he's you know the type of player that if if you want him to thrive, you have to let him basically run your attack. He's gonna see a lot of the ball more than anyone near in the attacking areas probably, and he's gonna shoot more than anyone else as well. If you let him do that, he'll probably win your games on his own. Mm. Or you might become a bit reliant on him. Um, and the, if you're one of those types of players, you have to be really good to get one of those roles at the very top mm. clubs. Messi's obviously got that role at Barca. Sees the ball all the time, shoots all the time. But Coutinho, you're not going to get that role in the same side as Messi, when, mm. especially when uh, Valverde is your manager. He's a bit more yeah, funky yeah. in his in his thinking. So, team didn't work for him. And I think it's going to be. It just doesn't sit right with me that a player as good as him, as good as Coutinho, is going to be basically clamouring for a club for a club in the summer. Well, you know, it, it might work to someone's fortune there. Um, I don't know who, I don't know where they end up. But do you think he's the type of player that maybe needs to not be at the truly elite top 0.1% of clubs? Like he maybe just has to be that tier below. Like uh, instead of playing for a, a, a league winner side, he has to play for maybe a, a top three, top two or three side. Yeah, so I think. I think if he, if he was to play for one of those that you just said, he'd probably be the best player for them. Um, but just in terms of the absolute top sides, Real Madrid, Barcelona, um, a team like that, you have to kind of give them a licence and you've got to be really, really good to get a licence at those clubs. So, mm. yeah, I know what you're saying there. Um, mm. In terms of Arsenal on a day, funny enough, a certain Alex Oxley Chamberlain started for Arsenal Wenger. Fresh faced Alex Oxley Chamberlain. Fresh faced and bald version of Alex Oxley. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael Arteta also started, which I thought was quite funny. Um, mm. Have you got any thoughts on why it didn't work for Ox at Arsenal? Yeah, you know, we, we've obviously seen quite a lot of him now at Liverpool, and we know the type of player he is, and, you know, he's. He's he's pretty positive on the ball. He's a he's a risk taker, isn't he? And if you kind of think about the comments we've just said about Arsenal, they had this kind of controlling style of dominating the ball. That's quite reliant on players just keeping keeping play ticking over, which might be five or ten yard passes and those type of things. And I feel like that would not be a pre- his his style of play in terms of taking risks, being more direct, carrying the ball would not be as highly thought of in the Arsenal side or has not be uh, as wanted compared to, say, at Liverpool now where Klopp obviously values that kind of behaviour. Yeah, no, that's my perception on him as well. I don't think he, don't think he was very suited to relatively slow possession-based football. Um, mm. I think he's the type of player that thrives in transition. I think he's a runner. Mm. He's a, a powerful player. He uses his physical traits more than his technical traits. Um, and I think I think he's always had kind of a desire to press. Um, I remember the clip away at Bayern Munich. I think it was for Arsenal. Do you remember it? And he presses Bayern Munich defence. Oh, yeah. No one follows him, 
and he turns around and pulls a stop like a ten year old. Because he's he's dying to kind of be a bit proactive without the ball, but yeah, him. go and get the ball. Yeah, um, straight away he tells yeah, himself he's a clock player. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in addition, have you have you actually checked Arsenal's bench on the day? No, no, I have. I, I, I was. I know Fabianski was on there, and um, there's a few. I glanced at it, but I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Now, no. Yeah, well, Fabianski was on there, which I thought was interesting because I think he'd mm. um, maybe not. I don't know. Would you start Fabianski over Bernard Leno? I know you rate Fabianski. We all do, don't we? But yeah, I, I, you know what? God, that's a tough question. Could, could you know, because ended up selling Fabianski. Yeah, I put. Uh, Fabianski didn't look phenomenal, I think, for the first year or two after his move. It's only in recent times he seemed to kind of develop as a as a top keeper for me. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question, that, Josh. I don't know who would I have because I know he gets a little bit of stick, but I do think Leno was actually a decent keeper. Um, yeah, yeah. He's better with his feet. I don't know, mate. That's t- yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'd agree with that. Maybe Fabianski is a better... I don't know, traditional keeper, but I'd probably be inclined to go for Leno given the state of the modern game. Yeah. But the one other player on the bench that I thought was interesting, uh, Serge Gnabry. Yeah, no, I did see this. Oh, yeah, I meant to, I meant to mention it, yeah. Yeah, he's not, yeah. Um, that's mad, isn't it, when you've seen how, how good he's turned out to be. Yeah, he's turned into an absolute top player um, to the extent that he he'd suit in he'd fit in seamlessly to, to Liverpool's side I think yeah but then once again is he like the what you what we've just been saying about Oxlade Chamberlain there and that he's he potentially there's an obvious reason why he wasn't a success at Arsenal because of the way he, the player he is yeah I mean this was six years ago now he's 24 mm. now so he will have been 18 on this day mm. um, so we obviously weren't particularly ready back then but I think it's just quite strange that someone as wise as Arsene Wenger didn't really spot the player in there. Well, I don't know, I suppose he didn't, he didn't. Because he, mm. he sanctioned the sale, but at the same time, I suppose he had him on the bench at, at age 18. But I don't know, maybe he's surprised that he reached this level. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, it's hard to call that one. Sometimes it's... I, I don't know, I can't can't really explain it. Is it... He knows that the player wouldn't have fitted in with the philosophy at the club, or I don't know, bizarre. But I mean, yeah. he must be must be kicking themselves a little bit over that one. Yeah, I think overall, the actual match, the way the match played out, um, Liverpool's five goals. Um, I think they kind of highlighted Wenger's decline. Actually, for me, um, I think Wenger was visionary, and I think I still think he is. But he, he always placed an emphasis on creative freedom, possession-type football, um, with less of an emphasis placed on what happens when the ball is lost. And I think gradually as football has evolved, those aspects have become increasingly important. And Wenger just got, I suppose, kind of shown up in the big matches because... The likes of Guardiola pays a lot of attention to this sort of thing. Um, and it, I think Guardiola played Wenger twice in the space of a week in Wenger's final season, I think. And City won 3-0 both times. And both matches were just a non-contest. And it was kind of like watching Wenger against an old-school manager 20 years ago. Mm. Watching Guardiola against Wenger now, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I do, I think. At that level, it's really hard for the elite to maintain being an elite coach for a prolonged period. I mean, Arsene Wenger did do it to an extent, let's be clear, but we're just talking about the very latter stages now, like the last few years of his, his time at Arsenal. Um, and I do, I think he struggles. And there's, But there's not many coaches who've been able to maintain that kind of... Um, ability to reinvent and kind of go with the times you know you say Ferguson did it but even I thought I thought Ferguson retired at a very wise age because just those last yeah the last couple of years and a few of the European ties he was United got found out um 
And I think if Ferguson was five years younger and lasted another five years on, on top of that 2013 campaign, I think we would have saw, ahead, you know, it might sound controversial, but I think we would have saw a similar kind of demise. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that, yeah. Um, I think he's he's quite underrated, Ferguson, in terms of how how on the ball he actually is, isn't he? Mm. Um, and I think he retired with the awareness that, I don't know, football's become maybe a bit of a different game compared to when he actually started. I think he was always very good at keeping on top of, you know, getting getting another assistant in every few years who was yeah. on, on top of the, the new aspects of the game. But I think maybe facing Guardiola's team in the Champions League and getting completely, well, I mean, outplayed, but I mean, the majority would. But, and then and facing Mourinho as well a few times and seeing the rise of Manchester City. I think it just starts. I think he maybe started to, to think to himself, you know, this is this is getting away from me to retain yeah, my legacy. Yeah. Maybe I have to call it a day. Yeah, as you said, he's a very wise man. But I tell you what, it'll be interesting now if people want to see a modern day version of this. It'll be interesting to see how Mourinho copes over the next twelve months, eighteen months, and whether because I think he's on that. He's just on the edge of that cliff now, and it's it'll be interesting to see whether he can kind of maintain or oh, at this level or kind of drop off um, yeah because that's that's an interesting one now because it's it doesn't look great at Spurs yeah just before we round up then um, out of the five goals do you have a favourite um, yeah it's got to be the storage one for me like the, the three ball by Coutinho and yeah the finish <laughs> yeah I was thinking the other one I was thinking the one when Henderson pressurises Ozil to the extent that Ozil falls over and then Henderson oh, yeah, he has to get yeah Henderson counter-attacks gives the ball to Suarez and Suarez puts it on a play for Sterling and Sturridge but Sterling gets there yeah. first and that, that was a ridiculous ball yeah but I think that goal epitomised the game plan really mm. what, um, what was the fifth goal I can't remember that the fifth goal a ball over the top Sterling gets his foot onto it Arsenal play offside uh, and Sterling runs through hits the ball right to Chesney it comes right back oh, to him yeah. and he hits it again and it goes in oh yeah I think that was the fifth yeah, one uh, yeah yeah no you're right I remember now because it's obviously the only one that was in at the cop end wasn't it yeah because the game was already ready yeah yeah, yeah. Um, mm. so unless you've got anything to add Dave I think we'll round up there um, let no, us know I'm, just, I'm just laughing to myself just quickly, I'm just laughing to myself. That guy, our producer, is a big Arsenal fan and he's going to have to listen and watch all this back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, add to, his, um, Sorry, mate. to add to his happiness of uh, self-quarantine. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let us know what you think of this episode. This was obviously a bit of an alternative one, but we've got to find ways of creating this sort of content. So let us know what it was like and if you've got any any other matches that you want us to tackle that we haven't previously tackled inside the past year, then give us a shout. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dave. Cheers, mate. And we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.